0: Say thing about it I won't say anything about it <laughs> I won't say anything all right now you know I pull for those balls. all right guys uh, we've, we're turning to a very important book in the Bible it's named Amos and if you've got a spirit of the Reformation study Bible you'll find it on page 1437 somebody help the Auburn graduates with that 1437 I don't know if they I don't know if they go that high Anyway, all right. So uh, we're looking at the book of Amos. This book was written, you can see here on this little time chart, around uh, uh, the ninth century. It was during the period of Jeroboam II, and what had happened was, as you see, the kingdom of Israel had been divided into Judah and Israel, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And soon after that, we're going to have the prophet Amos who speaks around 860, 865, something like that, during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, the reason this is such a cool prophet and very helpful for us today, listen to the, the status of things in that time. This is before, of course, by 150 years, 140 years. Before the northern kingdom was taken into exile by Assyria, they are fat and happy. They're wealthy. They're prosperous. The northern kingdom in Israel, unlike the southern kingdom, which was faithful for a little longer. You see, they didn't go into exile uh, until 586 B.C. The northern kingdom was financially prosperous. Uh, If you've been to Israel And you've looked at just the layout of the geography. You can see there's a major passageway that goes through the northern kingdom. Lots of trade, lots of merchants. And, of course, it was a great battleground. That's the reason that Armageddon is the Valley of Megiddo, because in the Valley of Megiddo, all these trade uh, uh, folks passed through there and also armies passed through there because that was a very important passageway between Egypt, the great kingdom of the, the south, and Assyria or Babylon, those kingdoms of the east, so they would all pass through there. That made Israel a very prosperous kingdom. And with money comes all kinds of problems. I'm sure none of you know anything about that. But when there's money and prosperity, you're going to get lots of sin in all of its variety. Also in this season, Amos' season, which would be right up in here around 860 B.C., they were not under threat yet from Assyria. So militarily and politically, they, their borders were secure, and they were feeling, feeling very secure, very proud of themselves, very self-satisfied. And in their self-satisfaction, you know, when we don't have problems, we go astray. So in their self-satisfaction, they were beginning to worship other gods. They were also beginning to think that God's blessing falls upon the rich, and the richer you are, the more blessed you are, and it doesn't much matter how you treat your neighbor. We're going to see that that was the big concern of Amos. Now the cool thing about Amos was he was a guy like most of you. He was a businessman, and he makes a big deal out of this later on, as we'll see in his prophecy. He says, "Look, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. That is, I didn't grow, I didn't, my dad didn't go to seminary. I'm not a preacher's kid. I'm not a preacher myself, because you know, in in the school of the prophets, uh, often you would have prophet sons become prophets." And there was a school of them. They were trained. They would go to seminary, if you will, in in their way of looking at it. And Amos says, I ain't one of those. He said, I'm a shepherd. I'm a self-employed business guy. And God just called me out of my business to go say something. And it wasn't for very long. His period of prophesying was probably a period of two years when the Lord put a burden on his heart. And here's what happened to the man. Here's what happened to this businessman. He found his voice, as Covey would put it. He found out what life was all about. He found out what his role was. He found out how he was supposed to make a difference in his own community, how he was supposed to influence his neighbors and his, uh, even his state, if you will, the politics, and how he was to influence the justice system. He's just a business guy minding his own business until the Lord called him out of it. So here's a guy who is minding his own business, didn't go to seminary, was not a professional clergy bird, uh, and who is speaking to a very wealthy prosperous, self-satisfied culture. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> We've got a room full of business guys, professional people largely, a few of your clergy birds, but most of you not. And we're living in the same kind of culture that Amos was living in, and God called him out of his business, put him back in his business later. I mean, it's not as though you have to leave your business in order to be a prophet. That's the whole point. That if we are fulfilling our role, we've seen that Jesus Christ is the great fulfillment of all the prophets of the Old Testament. He's the ultimate prophet. And then we've seen that by the Spirit, He makes all of us prophets. If we're in Christ, if we're following Christ, we become prophets. So this is how we find our voice. It's in Christ. And we'll have the same voice that this little shepherd from Tokoa had. Now, look with me at kind of the layout, the lay of the land. Here it is. Tekoa is south of Jerusalem. Here's the southern kingdom. Here's the northern kingdom. And here is the valley uh, through which many of the tradesmen would pass right through here. And then they'd go on up to Damascus and Assyria and so on. And they would come right through here and go down the coast to Egypt. So that's the reason this was such a rich trade area. And you'll find Samaria right here. So all these tradesmen were going through here. And when you get military control, you could charge taxes and tolls for going through here, which they did. Uh, some of you have been to Bet-Shion, which is right here. That's what that was. It was a passageway, a very narrow passageway. Uh, when you get to the Jordan River, that you go here and then on up north. So Israel was very prosperous. Amos is a southerner. He is a self-employed businessman in the south, south of Jerusalem. He speaks both to Israel and to Judah, but... Probably primarily to Israel, the northern kingdom. The reason is that a lot of his prophecies will be spoken in Samaria, the capital of the north, and in Bethel, which is not shown here, but it's right around there somewhere, uh, which was a place where the northerners had set up a worship center in Bethel, in Bethel and in Dan. They had worship centers, and, of course, they'd set up these golden calves, you know, just like they had in Egypt, false worship. So God had a lot to say about that, too. But here we have a very prosperous nation, self-employed businessman from uh who's now asked by God, commanded by God to go north and deliver some very scathing prophecies. Now, let's look at chapter one and we'll see how this gets started. And uh, I want us to to notice that what is going to happen in chapters one and two is that God is going to show us that he speaks to all the nations that Jehovah is unlike the other tribal gods like Moloch of the Moabites uh, or the other gods of the Ammonites who were mostly concerned with their own people. No, this God, Jehovah, the God of the Israelites, was the God of all the nations. So He speaks to all of them. But what's interesting when we look at these first couple of chapters is that we're going to see that he, He judges all the nations. Then even more interestingly... We're going to see that he judges Israel just like he judges the other nations. That's the big point in chapters 1 and 2. Then turn to chapter 3 and uh, you'll see that God begins to testify against his people. And uh, we have what we have seen before as Lawsuits. Uh, If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, hear this, the word uh, of the Lord, the the word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. So he's speaking against them. We saw in Hosea how God, as the judge and prosecutor and jury and executioner, he's all of them, will call us into court and um, he will file a reeve, a, a lawsuit against us and so he's the prosecutor and the judge and the jury and this is what's happening in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 you hear it you see it again chapter 4 at the beginning hear this words hear this word you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria he's talking about the cows that they worship and he's calling them cows you you uh, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and so on and say your husband's bringing some drinks so there are a couple of lawsuits Then when you get to chapter five, he says, once again, this word here, Shema, hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament, I take up concerning you. So now God is going to sing a dirge like a funeral. So first of all, God's showing us that he's sovereign over all the nations and he's going to judge us just like he does everybody else. Then in chapters three and four, he shows I got a lawsuit against you, got a suit against my people. Then you turn to chapter 5, all the way from 5 to chapter 9, verse 10, all the way through there. And we're going to try to cover as much of this as we can today. We'll just see how it goes. 9, 10, you get this lament. And we're going to see what God is really sad about. What makes God sad as he laments over us? And then you get to chapter 9, verse 10. And you see in that day, what day? Verse 11, chapter 10, verse 11. In that day, I will restore. So as we've seen before, God is both judge and restorer. And we've seen that those judgments will come and they do come. When God comes in 722 through the Assyrians to take the Israelites into uh, exile, 586 B.C., 150 years later, He comes and takes the Judahites into exile to Babylon. So He does judge. But on that last day, And his ultimate, his last word is a word of restoration. And we'll see that. It's common in all the prophets and certainly in Amos. So let's turn back to chapter 1. And uh, let's get a good look then at what the prophet is saying to us. This is God's lawsuit against us. And the first shocker we get in chapters 1 and 2 is that the church is judged just like the world. If you look in one, one through two, three, you'll see that God roars and thunders at a violent world. And look at this. These six nations are picked out and he uses this little formula for three sins and for four. And that's a common formula in this period in uh, in the Near East to speak of an increasing judgment that's coming upon the people for three sins of Damascus. This is verse three for three sins of Damascus. Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire upon the house of Hazel that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. He's just picking out the cities and towns of Assyria and saying, I want to wipe this place out because they took advantage of my people. So what God is saying is, as we saw last time in looking at Joel, we, rejo- we repent when we see that the end time is coming. We rejoice in it because we know that God is going to vindicate His people. There's not one thing done against His people that will not be vindicated. Don't worry about it. You're not to vindicate yourself. God will vindicate you. You're not to take vengeance for your own person. God will take vengeance. And here's what's happening then uh, with, us, with Syria. They're not getting by with a thing. In history, it may look like they're getting by with, with something. And, of course, the psalmists struggle with this. You know, the wicked, they look like everything's going fine for them. No problems in this world. And then we see that the psalmist in Psalm 73 says, Yeah, until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I discern their end. And here's the end. God is going to judge all the nations. It's not just the church. It's not just America or the West or places where His church is established. He is the Lord of all the nations, whether they realize it or not. Now, the big shock is that... He not only speaks of Israel or rather of the surrounding nations, but he speaks about his church. Look here. God roars and thunders at a violent church for lawlessness and idolatry. He says, I will send fire upon Judah for injustice, for trampling the poor and abusing the privileges. He says, I will crush you. Here's the big shocker. The church is listening to God talk about his judgments around the world. And they're going, go get them, Jehovah. Yeah, those Syrians. I hate those people, you know. Those Edomites. Yeah, they took advantage of us some hundreds of years ago. It's about time you get after them. Yeah, those Russians, go get them. Those Muslims, go get them, God. You know, they don't believe in you. And they're they're very violent. And God says, hang on just a minute. I haven't finished my speech. He says, I have a few words to say about Israel and Jew- I have a few words to say about you. Do you realize that if your God is the God of all the earth and the judge of all the earth, he's also the judge of you and of your culture and of your church and of your family? So listen up. And if you'll notice in this pattern, you, you wouldn't notice, I guess unless somebody pointed out to you, because I wouldn't have either. But look at this just a minute. Here's a map of all the nations that are mentioned. It's called the Whirlpool of Judgment by some scholars. He starts with Syria, Damascus. We just read that. And then he comes to Philistia. And then he mentions Phoenicia. And then he mentions Edom. And then he mentions Ammon and Moab. And there's a little whirlpool, a little circle that's going on here. And look what he's doing. He's closing in on his own people. Because then in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, he goes to Judah. And then in 2, 6 through 16, he goes to Israel. You see what Amos is doing He's kind of using the same method that Nathan used when he went to David. Talk about David's big sin of murder and adultery. If any of you think you're really bad, you're not any worse than David. David was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because when David was confronted with his murder and his adultery, he just simply said, I've sinned. No excuses. Didn't say my mama didn't raise me right. My dad abandoned me when I was four years old. Didn't give us any of that crud. He just said, I have sinned. Real clear, real simple, took responsibility for what he had done, and then he was restored to the Lord and developed an intimate relationship with him. He was a man after God's own heart. Bad guy, did a lot of bad stuff, but a man after God's own heart because he knew how to find repentance and faith. What did Nathan do when he convicted David? He said, let me tell you a little story about somebody else. You know, about the guy, the rich man who took the one poor little ewe lamb from his poor neighbor to provide a feast for a guest instead of slaying one of his many lambs. And this little ewe lamb was the house pet of the poor neighbor. And David was incensed. And he said, I'll have that man's neck. And Nathan said, You're the man. Because Uriah the Hittite had one beautiful wife. And he was out fighting a war for you, David. And you had many wives and concubines. But no, Take one. You got tired of yours, so you began looking out and you saw his, and you wanted what he had. You're the one who took the poor, you lamb of your poor neighbor. And that's exactly what Amos is doing. He's saying, okay, you can see all the wickedness of all these people out here. And just think about it. If you just listen, just listen to the voice of the Bible-believing church in America. We're really good at critiquing everybody else's sins. Telling all the politicians, you know, the problem with America is the politicians. How many times do you hear that? The problem with America is the gay agenda. How many times do you hear that? The problem with America is not the politicians nor the gay agenda. The problem with the American church is the American church. That's what Amos is saying. Let's just go around and let's critique everybody. And let's just revel in how God's going to damn every single one of them. And take care of all my enemies. Let's just revel and just notice that. Oh, yeah, God, that one, that one. And then the, the whirlpool starts to come. It's like a toilet flushing. <laughs> it gets narrow, narrow and narrow. It's going, getting ready to go right down the hole. And here it is. You're right in the middle of it. <laughs> Judah and Israel. And let's see what he says then in chapter 2 when he, when he homes in on us. If you look in chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, he's, he's starting to finish up here. Here's his last one. He says, for three sins of Moab. Oh, yeah, those Moabites, they're bad actors. They have been for centuries. You know, they just got bad DNA. Even for four, I will not turn back, back my wrath because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult and war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him. And he gets, God gets a standing ovation from the church on that one. Then look at verse 4. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah. That arrests everyone. Three sins of Judah. God's precious people. His sons. Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. His wrath toward His people. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord. And have not kept His decrees. Because they had been led astray by false gods. The gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortress of Jerusalem. And then he says, for three sins of Israel, Israel. Now Amos is preaching in Israel, so now it's getting really personal. He's not just talking about those sinners uh, who are in the neighboring uh, states. Now he's talking about them. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Look at this. They sell the righteous for silver. And the needy for a pair of sandals, they trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. And look at this father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. They drink wine taken as fines. Okay. There are three biggies with the prophets. Three whopper sins that God seems to repeat over and over again with the prophets. Number one, idolatry. Worshipping false gods. God hates that. When you put something as a first priority in your life, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, Muslim, none of the above, if you put something in, first in your life other than the living God who created this earth and redeemed us through Christ, if you put something else first, that's idolatry. God hates that. That's number one. Number two, you'll find social injustice. God hates it when we break the standards of mercy and compassion and legal righteousness toward our neighbor. We're going to talk about that this morning. That's a big one. And it's particularly big with Amos. That's probably the biggest concern that Amos has is that the northern kingdom in particular had abandoned the standards for communal love and concern for one another. And the third big one is sexual immorality. I was just talking to someone, a friend of mine who's serving in the urban area. He said, you know, if we could just straighten out this one thing and begin to build our families on just simple faithfulness to one another. He said it's just amazing the kind of changes we would see because we know that when people come to Christ, begin to get their lives straight in that issue, when the girls will just, you know, in spite of their low self-esteem that they've inherited, just deny the offers and seductions of the men coming to them. And when the men get it straight that this is what it is to be a man, he says, it's just amazing what happens to the economy and the social welfare of our community. And so God cares a lot about sexual immorality, not because it's just a denial of our love for him, but because it destroys succeeding generations. God cares a lot about this. So those are the three big whoppers that you'll find, not only in the minor prophets, but in the major prophets as well. And Amos is going to take on especially this second one that I mentioned, as we've seen. So in chapters one, two and three, we see the shocker that he is filing a lawsuit uh, even against his own people. Now, when you turn to chapter three, if you will, you'll see this first lawsuit. And this is God versus the church. (laughs) those of you who are lawyers, here's your case. God v. church. And the first thing we're going to see in verses 1 through 15 is He's going to sue us for our oppression of the poor. Look in chapter 3. Hear this word. The Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. And look at verse 6. When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Now just hold on there just a minute. Verse 6. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Is that the way that God's people are thinking? No, 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 it's just an accident. You know, God would never do that. Oh, yeah, He would too. I don't know why, unless it's written in the Bible. I don't know why he's doing what he's doing, but he's doing. He's in charge of the weather. He's in charge of earthquakes. He's in charge of famine. He's in charge of military operations. So the first thing that a believer does when anything's happening to us is we look to the Lord. We know that he's in charge of all things. And here he is, first of all, calling the people to realize God has a lawsuit against you. And don't think that the disaster that's coming is some accident because you forgot to fill your armories with more spears. No, this is God at work. And so uh, then if you'll turn to verse 9, Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. We'll talk more about this in a few moments. Look here. He He is suing us for our oppression of the poor. And here are the special aggravations. We saw in verse 1 and 2, we're God's family. That means we should be the ones who tremble at His voice. We're His kids. If anybody recognizes His voice, it should be ourselves. If anybody recognizes that we should humble ourselves when disaster comes, it is ourselves. And Amos is saying, you people are the last ones to look to God. You don't have a very good theological view of what your disasters mean. You think it's bad luck. Instead of looking to the Lord for mercy and for understanding and for repentance and faith. So there's a special aggravation because we're God's family and we should be the ones trembling. We should be the one recognizing the prophet's authority. But if you look in verses seven and eight, he says, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? And yet we'll see that the Israelites were not even receiving Amos's word is the word of God. They should have recognized his word as the word of God. It should have made sense to them. But no, they haven't been following God, so they didn't recognize his voice. And it's his family who should be the models of righteousness, as we saw in, in verses 9 and 10. He says in verse 10, they do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who hoard, plunder, and loot in their fortresses. They hoard their money. They've forgotten the law of the land. And we'll get to that in a moment. And so, we're the family, we're the ones who should know this stuff, no sir. Uh, We're the ones who are violating the law right and left. God doesn't like that. And then, His special judgments. Not only the aggravations, but the judgments. He says in verse 11, we will be overrun by our enemy. An enemy will overrun the land in verse 11. In chapter 3 verse 12, He says, only a remnant will be saved, so there will be destruction, In judgment, except for a remnant. And there will be a remnant. We'll emphasize that later. He says that our religion will be destroyed. So our materialism, our greed, the the gods of sexuality and lust, whatever gods you've got yourself, whatever your gods are, they're going to be wiped out. And then in verse 15, the very thing that we worship, which is our wealth, will be destroyed. This is a scathing judgment. He says, I will tear down the winter house, verse 15, along with the summer house. Some of you have houses, you know, several places. He says, if you are ignoring the poor, if you're ignoring my law about how to take care of people in community with you, I'm taking both of those houses and going to wipe them out. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished. And if you look at our culture, it's unbelievable. The mansions that are going up everywhere. Houses that people 30 years ago could not imagine that we would have more than five or six of them in the city. They're just going up in these massive communities, huge houses. People are expanding their floor space. I'm wondering, what do you do with all that square footage? You know, all the kids are up and out. We're building 8,000 square foot homes. What in the world are you going to do with that? You work out in there? You run track? You have a track meet in your house? What do you do with all that space? People are basically doing it because Joe did it. And if I'm going to be in business with Joe and impress Joe or I'm going to have a client, my clients over here and they're going to think that I'm successful, I have to have a house like everybody else. And God says, wrong! You're building your ivory-laden houses. You're storing up your loot. You're taking advantage of the poor as much as you can to build these huge things. He says, I'm going to take them all away because you've ignored what I told you to do in community. I mean, I'm sorry if this makes you uncomfortable. Uh, I'm no Amos, but he's got me kind of fired up here, you know. Uh, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet either. I, I was in business too. Lord, I don't know what happened to me. But it's a it's a fiery message. It's a lawsuit that you and I have not handled our material possessions fairly and justly, according not according to civil law, but according to moral law. We'll get to that in a moment. Now, look at chapter 4. This is a second lawsuit. He sues us first of all for our oppression of the poor. Secondly, he's going to sue us for our insensitivity. And he calls us cows. (laughs) Uh, And you notice in verse 1, now guys, don't, don't make this the first thing you tell your wife when you go home, but he is talking to the women, I have to say. He calls the women cows, and women don't like to be called cows. I, I don't know. I don't suggest you try that out to find out. I just I've seen this happen before. They don't appreciate it at all. And here, but here's his case. He's saying these fat, wealthy, spoiled women who have within eyesight people who don't have food to eat and sandals to wear are saying, "Honey, bring me another drink." And God said, I don't like that. These proud, fattened, self-satisfied women. I don't like that. Now we're off the women. We'll get to the men. We're going to see that they're insensitive toward others. He calls them cows. They oppress the poor. And uh, they will be punished by others. So first of all, we're insensitive to other people. Secondly, he says, we're insensitive toward God. This is the case. And if you'll look at verse 4, you'll see that there's some uh, hypocritical bragging going on about our free will offerings. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. He's saying, go to these places of worship you've got, these places of worship that say, oh, it doesn't matter if you worship Jehovah and another God. Jehovah's not the only way. Come on to Bethel, come on to Gilgal, and we'll teach you a broader view of religion. You know, these Jewish people, especially those Southerners, they're so narrow-minded. Those Judahites, they're trying to tell us that Jehovah, Jehovah's jealous, that he doesn't want any other God worshiped. Ah, oh, come on over here to Bethel, Gilgal. We'll teach you real religion, enlightened religion that there are several ways, and the different cultures of the world have different religions. I mean, some of you haven't traveled very much, but if you get over there to Damascus, if you get as far away as Babylon, or, oh, if you, if you get on up to Greece, you'll discover some amazing things that, you know, religion is really an emotional experience that we all need. And if you just create a God that suits you and your culture, that's what's important, that you be sincere. Now, we'd like you to come over here, and we're going to mix things up a little bit for you. We'll show you a little breadth to the religion. We'll show you Jehovah worship. Yeah, we're not saying Jehovah doesn't exist. We're not saying that. I mean, we're Jehovahites. Don't you dare say that we don't trust in Jehovah. We're Jehovahites. We're just saying that you can enjoy these other religions. too, we give other people credit? They're seeking God just like you are. That was the religion. Does this sound familiar to anybody? That was the religion. And so God says, okay, go ahead. Just go to Gilgal. Go to Bethel. Go on and sin. Create your own religion. Create your own God. A God who will suit your peccadilloes. A God you can get along with. That's the kind of God you want. Go ahead. Create it. Worship it. Serve it. That's what he's saying in verse 4. Go over there. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering. And brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do. You like to create your own religion, and then you like to brag about how faithful you are to it, and what difference you're making in our culture, and how good you are to people around you. It's the sins of a wealthy, fattened, self-satisfied culture. That's what Amos is dealing with. And then in verses six through eleven, he shows us that we show our insensitivity toward God by refusing to repent, following God's discipline. Now, here are the disciplines that are there. Look at all those. Verse 6, I made you hungry, and yet you didn't return to the Lord. Verses 7 and 8, I made you thirsty, you didn't return to the Lord. Verses, verse 9, I gave you blight, mildew, and locusts. That didn't seem to have any effect. Verse 10, I gave you plagues and death. That didn't seem to turn you around. And then verse 11, I gave you a military threat. I sent some terrorists over there and bombed you. That didn't seem to get your attention either, he says. He says, to sum it all up, uh, he says it, Five times, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. So he's saying, hello. Are you thick, skulled, hard-hearted? What is it? I can't get anybody's attention, it seems. I sent you preachers. I gave you Billy Graham. Oh, Sorry, Amos. I gave you all kinds of people. Nobody's listening to me. So you can see how the lawsuit is taking shape. And then he gives a warning. He says... In the past, God has proven Himself. You know that God is God. In the present, you're going to meet Him. And these famous words in verse 12 of chapter 4, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That's kind of the summary of it all. We need to be living in such a way that we're prepared to meet our God. Now you have to be careful how you say this, of course, to other people. A dear friend of mine, John Wood, who's the pastor of Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church in Knoxville. Uh, his daddy was a Baptist pastor and, and he trained, uh, back in the days of the Depression, uh, and just before the Depression in the 20s actually, in Chicago. Uh, and he was a, a man of, uh, of little means. He, he was re- a relatively poor man, his dad was. And he, he did his uh, training at Moody Bible Institute right there in the heart of Chicago. Now, think about the 20s in Chicago. Uh, Gangs, uh, really rough, violent. And Mr. Wood, John's daddy, had made a vow to the Lord that every day of his life, he was going to witness to at least one person. So Mr. Wood, who went to school by day and worked in a factory at night to make money for him and his wife, was at the train station just before it was getting ready to close down. And uh, it was either a train or a bus. And it was about 11 o'clock at night. And his beard had grown out a little bit during the day. He was looking pretty scruffy. And it just dawned on him, I haven't witnessed anybody today. So there he is all by himself. Train station. And lo and behold, God's providence, a nice young man walks up and stands right by him by the platform there to wait for the train. And Mr. Wood thought, this is my chance. So he kind of screwed up his nerve and he said, Sir, are you prepared to die? (laughs) This is the 1920s with all the gangs. And Mr. Wood is looking pretty rough coming out of the factory. The man just stood there, looked straight ahead. And when the train came and the doors opened, he dove onto the floor face first. (laughs) Watch out how you say this to other people. But God is saying it to you. Prepare to meet your God. Oh, Israel. And you know what, guys? The most important thing you can do this morning at uh, 7, 10 a.m. is to prepare to meet your God. It's the most important thing you can do. And if you are preparing, you're going to be open to what God has to say to us about how we're supposed to live in this life in the present. And then in the present, we are told in verse 13, He's an awesome God. He who forms the mountain, creates the wind, and reveals His thoughts to man. Look how great your God is. This is no tribal deity. This is God who made the heavens and the earth. And He rules over it sovereignly. He's governing everything, every nation, every person, every hair on every head. This is the God you're dealing with. So when He makes a pronouncement or when He gives us a law, when He reveals His thoughts into your mind through the Bible, this is a God to take seriously. So He says in the present, be aware you're dealing with someone who's awesome. So there is the case, all right? That's presented before Israel that we, first of all, have oppressed the poor. And secondly, we have not responded very well to either revelation through the scriptures, through the prophets, nor have we responded well to divinely governed circumstances that have come into our lives. We're not listening very well at all. So he has two cases that he's bringing before his people into the law court. Now, if we turn to chapter five and you see we are making progress, we're actually catching up. We're no longer officially one week behind. Now we're only a half week behind. Now we're going to look at chapter 5 through 9, verse 10. We're going to see not only God's lawsuit against us, but his lament over us. And you see, he's very sad. Uh, He says, verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Now, what's he lamenting? First of all, God is lamenting our predicament. This is the strangest thing about God. He is not like an angry, petulant, unreasonable uh, man who can't control his anger. That's not the way. He's not capricious, whimsical. He is steady and righteous. He is holy. But he, you have to understand that God is complex. He has many attributes all working at the same time. At the same time that He loves His law and He wants us to keep it. He's tender-hearted. He's very compassionate. And even if He disciplines us, uh, He is very sad about that. And any father here who really loves his children knows that there are times when you get so angry with your children you want to wring their necks. But there, most of the time, even when you punish them, and sometimes we're not very good at discipline because we don't like to punish them. Because we're, we're too soft hearted and So there's no order or discipline in our homes. But you know what it's like. If you send a kid to his room and he's sitting there sobbing, well, you feel sorry for him. You don't want him to have to be in there. That's exactly the way the Lord is. He laments over us. So at the same time that you know him as an awesome God who's going to judge all evil, realize that for his people he's a tender-hearted father, more so than any of your grandfathers, any of your uncles, any person you've ever known more than your mother. God loves us more than our mothers do. He's very tender-hearted. And he laments over our predicament. First of all, because the ruin will be great. He says, fall on this virgin Israel, verse 1, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. How, what a sad story. And so God is lamenting our imminent, unnecessary ruin. This is not necessary. This does not have to happen. And he's weeping over us. Secondly, the remedy is really simple. Look at verse 4. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to syncretistic religions and merge all these gods together and claim that that's real religion and a real God. Forget all that. Leave that alone. Seek me. Seek me in my word. It's amazing how people can create their own standards and their own gods to suit themselves. He says, don't do that. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour devour, uh, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. So he's saying, look, you're dealing with a holy God. Let me plead with you. The house is on fire. Get out of it. So he's telling us about judgment, so, not so that he can delight in our destruction. He's telling us about judgment so that we can avoid it. This is the real love of a real father. So the remedy is really simple. Turn from your false worship, your false gods, and your false values and turn to the living God and true worship and the law of his word and the gospel. And the reasons are clear. Now, this is when we get to the heart of Amos' message. So let's look at verses 7 through 13 and get the heart of it. He says, He says, Uh, He's lamenting over us because, and these are the reasons. Verse 7, you turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Okay, two key words here. And you're going to see these repeated in Amos. Righteousness and justice. You're perverting both of them. You pervert righteousness and you pervert justice. Now let's look at these words for just a moment and see what righteousness and justice really are. That's the key, I would say to you, that's the key verse here to understand God's complaint. You turn justice into bitterness and you cast righteousness to the ground. We'll come back to that verse in just a moment. Let me just ask the question for now. What are righteousness and justice? Let's talk about these words for just a moment. They are rich biblical words. They need to be brought into practice today by people who profess to be followers of Christ. Righteousness, here's the Hebrew word, it's Zadik or tzedek. Uh, this S has a dot under it, so that means it's kind of T-S, Zedek. That's righteousness. Uh, for example, remember the name Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Melki means my king. Zedek means righteous. My king is righteous. So Hebrew names uh, often will have Zedek in it, if you think about it. So righteousness is used very often, and here's what it means. It means to act rightly or in accord with God's law. So a righteous man is one who takes God's law and he walks in accord with the standard that is revealed in God's word. He walks in accord with the standard, which is God's law. Now, for example, in Genesis thirty-eight twenty-six, some of you may remember when Judah... Uh, had got a prostitute, or what he thought was a prostitute. And it was Tamar in disguise. Tamar had been married to one of his sons. He died. She married another one. He died. Judah didn't want to give any more sons. So he made her a promise that she would have a lever at marriage and be able to take the next son, but he avoided it because he didn't want any more to die. Meanwhile, he's out, goes and gets a prostitute. And she says, well, give me your signet ring and your staff and your sandals or whatever it was, your robe, your outer garment. He leaves it there and... Goes back to get it and can't find it. And then he's told, it's Tamar, your former daughter-in-law. And what does he say? She is more righteous than I. That is, he was going to have her executed, stoned for being a prostitute. And then he finds out it's Tamar and he's caught. And he says, she is more righteous than I. What did he mean? He meant he did not follow the law of elaborate marriage where the next son is given the wife to take care of her and the children and give her a, give her seed. So she, he said he had to admit it. She's more righteous than I am. So she wasn't executed. There's a case of righteousness. What did Jesus say? He said to his disciples uh, when he was critiquing the Pharisees, he says, now hang on just a minute. The Pharisees have some problems. They're externally oriented. They're concerned about image management, not about the heart. And they don't take the law far enough. But he says, as far as you're concerned, let me tell you this anyone who's going to heaven, <clears throat> their righteousness must must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So the problem of the Pharisees is not that they're too meticulous about the law. No. The real followers of God will be more meticulous than the Pharisees are. And then he goes on to teach about what that meticulous heart is like. It's a heart that loves people, it's compassionate. Not just concerned about my righteousness, my standing before God, and certainly not bringing the law down uh, to meet human standards like the Pharisees did. So there's another case of righteousness, conformity to God's standard. Now, what is justice? Here's the word mishpat is the way you pronounce it. Mishpat is found 425 times in the Old Testament. This is a big word, a big concept, a key in the Old Testament. God is a God of Mishpat. He wants His people to be a people of Mishpat. What is it? It is to give your neighbor his due based on biblical communal standards. Give your neighbor his due. Now that has many implications. When you get in the courtroom and people have lawsuits against each other, you're to give your brother his due. And we are to see that the courts render justice to every man, every woman, every child, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their race, regardless of their record. They are to receive their due in court. And when that doesn't happen and the courts are perverted, God gets very upset with his people. There's another aspect to this giving your neighbor his due. When we live in community, as with the case of Israel and Judah, we are concerned about the welfare of our neighbor. We're not just concerned that they have a chance, theoretically speaking. We're not just concerned that they have their civil, juridical rights. We're concerned about that. All the people in this country have not had their civil rights up until very recently. And there are still questions prevailing today. Certainly God cares about that, but He cares about a whole lot more than that. And unfortunately, in this country, people think sometimes, well, if you give someone their legal, juridical rights, well, my my job's done. And now I can go make as much money as I want to, spend it however I want to, build my high wall, fence it in, lock it in, gate myself in, And I'm really not obligated to think about it anymore. As long as there's legal jurisprudence going on in this society, then I can be relieved of my duties. And God says, no, you can't. Not if you understand mishpat. Because mishpat cares for the neighbor. Let me give you an example. There's a law in the Old Testament that a man who owns a field can glean the field, but he can't go through the second time. You only go through once. You say, well, I didn't get all the the grain the first time. That's just the point. And poor people like Ruth can come through your field. She doesn't own it. She didn't work there. She just lives in your community. And she can come through your field on the second gleaning and get her food for her table. And you don't glean around the edges of your field so that the alien and the neighbor and the poor can come get some food. That's mishpat. That's justice. It's not. See, compassion is within this word mishpot. And most North Americans who've been brought up on the Roman rule of law think that justice is only legal jurisprudence. The Bible says no justice is more than that. It is legal. And you must be sure people get a fair day in court when there are criminal or civil suits. But you must also be sure that they have something to eat. Something to wear. A job that they can obtain if at all possible. And that you are obligated as the wealthy professionals in this culture to see that that is happening. That's mishpat. That's what the Christians are to be about. We focus on sins that we don't like. We don't like people having... We don't like the fact that in Memphis proper, 75% of our children are born outside of wedlock. We don't like that. So we speak a lot about it and we probably should. But typically suburbanites don't address the sins of Mishpat because you know what that's going to do? It's going to reduce your bank account. And it's going to change your calendar. And unfortunately for too many of us, our bank accounts and our calendars have become our gods. We want to spend our time the way we want to spend it. And we want to spend our money the way we want to spend it. And we just ignore God's word, which is exactly what the people did in the ninth century When Amos the businessman said, God tells me he's had enough of this and he's put this burden on my heart and I've had enough of it, and I'm going to find my voice in this culture, and I'm going to be a different man. So Mishpat is giving due to your neighbor. You also find, for example, in Israel, every fiftieth year they called it a year of Jubilee. What happens in the year of Jubilee? All the property in all the nation returns to its ancestral owners. You can start off with a piece of property. You can squander it for you, your children, and your grandchildren. But 50 years later, that property will return to your descendants who will be able to start all over again even though you screwed up and you ruined their name and you despoiled their inheritance. They have another chance. Now, I don't know. I don't think that could work in a nation that is a pluralistic nation like our own. But do you get the principle? That we've got to find ways, the landowners... And those who have the power in the economic engine of the West have to figure out ways regularly to re-empower those who through generations have lost their access to the levers of economic power. It is our solemn oath and duty to be sure there are mechanisms by Mishpat. There are mechanisms to reinstate those people. Let me give you an example of how this is done. Some of you already have designed your estates so that you're going to have a nice little gift for your children, allow them to get a little start, maybe help make that down payment on their next house or educate the grand, your grandchildren or whatever. But look, if that's all you're doing, Mishpot's not in your head. I'm talking to a group here who are some of the wealthiest in the entire world. If you're in East Memphis or surrounding area, you are in, among the wealthiest in the world. So, okay, you're building your estate. Some of you young men, you're building your business, your enterprise. You're building your ownership and your power and so on. And if your thought is to pass that down in toto to the next generation without any regard for non-family members and disempowered people who for centuries have had their hands off the lever of power, I think you're ignoring biblical law. For example, when, when Ray Kroc died, his widow now just putting these centers across all of our urban areas. Millions and millions of dollars for the Salvation Army. They're building one here in Memphis. Millions and millions of dollars. Now there's a good idea of mishpat. You take the things you've got and you're saying, you know what, I can see that in our country we've got some major problems and I want to do something about it. So let's ask ourselves, how are we doing in the United States of America? The gap between the haves and the have-nots not, have is greater than any time since 1929. Percentage of possessions owned by the top 10% in this country are the greatest it's ever been in the history of the country. The U.S. has the greatest income inequality of all developed nations. There's a greater gap in our country than in any country in the West and any developed country. When I was in high school... CEOs made 44 times what a worker made. So if a worker made $5,000, then a CEO would make $220,000, if I did my arithmetic correct. Okay? Fair enough. Ten years ago, it's 209 times. CEO salaries went up 500%. Company profits went up 145%. Workers' wages have hardly gone up at all. The minimum wage right now, if we, if minimum wage had kept up with CEO salaries, the minimum wage right now would be $39,000. The typical worker would be making today, if he kept up with his CEO, he'd be making six figures. Now, I know that CEOs are worth their money. I mean, just look. You look at, you know, uh, uh, Jim, what's his name? The good to great. Somebody help me. The Collins, yeah. Jim Collins, the good to great. You look at these great companies. And every one of them has a CEO who has some common traits. I suggest you read it. It's very interesting. I'm not against good CEOs, and I'm not against paying what they're worth. What I'm against is CEOs who have no mentality whatsoever for Mishpat. The living wage, I think we're told now, is, is it nine fifty an hour in Memphis? Is there any sense at all among your lowest paid workers that they ought to be made? I mean, we, we had to repent on the church staff. We had to be sure that every one of our, you know, our lowest paid people had a living wage. We were paying people that didn't have a living wage. And we're the church. What happened to Mishpat? Went out the window for all this fight about the legal ramifications of a minimum wage. Hey, look... I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about legislation right now. I'm talking about your business. I'm talking about your yard worker. I'm talking about the woman who helps in your house. And I'm talking about all the people under your employ. Do they have a living wage? Do they have medical care? Well, no. I tell you, they don't. Do you realize at Church Health Center, you can provide medical care for your part-time workers at a minimum cost? How many people are using it? Scott Morris is just amazed that so few people even take advantage of all the doctors, many, many doctors, some of you in this room, who have agreed to work with Church Health Center to provide low-cost, a sacrifice to yourself, doctors, low-cost medical care for part-time employees in the employ of people, professional people like people in this room. How many people take advantage of it and buy a cheap medical care policy for their house help and their yard workers and their part-time employees in work? Very, very few. Why? Because, shoot, that's all, it's, it's about me. <laughs> that would cost me something. And The whole game is to see how much I can end up with at the very end. That's the game. And I want to win. And God is simply saying that winning is defined differently. The poorest 10% in the U.S. are worse off than the poorest 10% in any developed country other than the U.K. The top 10% are getting wealthier in the past 10 years. The top 1%... Please get this. Top 1% in our country own more than the bottom 90%. There's a huge gap. And you say, Wilson, I'm not responsible for all this. Good grief, you're giving me statistics about this whole country. I didn't do this. (laughs) I'm saying just be sure you're not. How do you, you say can I be sure I'm not? i got 30 seconds. Here's how you be sure you're not. Take matters into your own hand where you have influence. Take matters into your own hand where you have influence. Study again these hundreds of instances of Mishpat in the Old Testament. Study Amos and see that God cares about this. And when we deny justice to the poor, which we are doing in our courts, by the way, more people go to prison for the same crime on lower income levels than those on higher income levels. More people are being executed who are black for the same crime than people who are white for the same crime in courts in America. There is tremendous juridical injustice in our courts. And then we have this widening gap on social justice. And we're swimming in it. We read the Wall Street Journal, Fortune Magazine. We, we are swimming in all this stuff. And we, if you just assume, take it into your life, no critique, no judgment, no repentance, no new ideas, you're just happily swimming along as those who are fattened calves who are just enjoying the drinks and the money and the, the privileges that you have received and you say, well, I didn't do it. I, just, I can't help it if they pay me that much. Yeah, you can too. You can give it away. So there has to be a new mentality of fedek, and Mishpat. That's what Amos, the businessman, is so worked up about. And the reason he's worked up, he thinks God is. I think he's right. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy things for us. And we know the end of this prophecy that you're going to restore all things. You're going to send your son, Jesus Christ. You're going to forgive us all of our sins. Not one sin held against us. We're free. We're not condemned. And yet we at the same time hear the thunder and the roar of your law. And we realize we're participating in a lot of stuff that probably doesn't make you very happy. So, God, we we pray that you'll help us today to figure this out. Help each man here to be an expert on what Mishpat means in his particular life. Not somebody else's life, but his life. Help me, Lord, to figure out what it means in my life. And may we all leave here as men who are pursuing, pursuing with all of our hearts, the living God, not some false God that we can create, but the living and the true God whose word and will has been made known in the sacred scriptures. And may we be men of this book. Because it is the book of God. Help us, for Lord, we're weak. We all like money. We all like privileges. We all like power. We're drawn to it. Please, Lord, constrain us by the love of Jesus Christ and because, precisely because, we've been forgiven all of our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.